I'm glad you come, and I want to just say a couple of things before I pray and we begin to look. I put, I put a timeline up here, and I want to uh, talk with that. If you can't read it, if you're far enough back, or if you can't read my writing, I'll uh, just point out things, and it'll make a little sense to you. But uh, I want to say to you that uh, I, I am not a theologian, and Revelation is difficult. You remember Peter said that Paul wrote some things that are difficult to understand, and and uh, John wrote some things that are difficult to understand. But here's what it says in the first three verses that you're familiar with. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to the servant John, uh, to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So we can understand some things and we can uh, be encouraged in the word of God. And specifically, the Lord wants us to understand something about what's to come. Revelation means the unveiling and it's the unveiling of what's to come. And uh, it's given to us for encouragement, it's given to us for instruction, and it's given to us by the Lord with his blessing. And so um, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I taught it in our class for about six months, and so we've already laughed about what can you do in an hour. And uh, so, but I'm just going to give you an overview. So what, what the staff's been doing for the last uh, year or so, just been giving an overview and uh, books of the Bible, and so uh, here we are tonight for the book of Revelation. Pray with me, please. Our Father, we ask you that you would help us as we study tonight and talk, uh, Lord, that you would give us uh, wisdom, and Lord, give us a measure of understanding by your Holy Spirit. It's your Holy Spirit that reveals the Word of God to us in truth, and uh, we need your help this evening. And Lord, I just ask you to uh, open our minds and our hearts and that we wouldn't just, uh, Lord, know facts and maybe knowledge, but we would uh, learn more of you and worship. And Lord, that's our goal. And so please help us in Christ's name. Amen. When, as we go through this, I want to mention to you there are different interpretations, and I'm not going to start with that, but... If you were to read a systematic theology like Gruden's, some of you in here have gone through our theology classes that we held years ago, and uh, some of you had uh, bought a Gruden's systematic theology. Um, you, you, could, you, you could probably get a systematic theology online for just a few dollars. Used to, there were about 50, but uh, now you can buy books about a tenth of what they used to cost. But it would give you the different... Um, it would give you the different uh, viewpoints of how you interpret the book of Revelation. I, I'm going to give you my viewpoint, and then, and I, but I'm telling you up front that it's my viewpoint. There are other people who have other view, viewpoints. And, and then I will mention them as we go through the other viewpoints just uh, for, your, for your benefit, just mention them. The first thing I put on the board is that I, in this little timeline, I put Daniel chapter 9. And so... I want you to understand where the book of Revelation fits in the timeline of Christian history. I'm going to read uh, the first, a few verses out of Daniel chapter 9, 
on your notes there, it's, it's chapter 9, verse um, 24, and verse through verse 27. And the, the angel Gabriel came to Daniel and gave him an outline, uh, not only of secular history, if you remember now, not in chapter 9, but he gave him an outline beginning back in chapter 2. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision, and the vision is of these successive kingdoms. He was the head of one kingdom, which was the Babylonian kingdom, and the, and the Persians were going to follow him, the Greeks were going to follow that kingdom, and then the Romans were going to follow that kingdom. The Roman kingdom would disintegrate, and then it would be brought back together uh, in two branches, and... Uh, maybe a division of ten toes. You remember that was the image, uh, and it had the two legs, the two branches of the Roman Empire. And we know from looking back at history that Daniel was exactly right. 700 years before it all happened, Daniel was exactly right. God gave him that vision. And it's really interesting. God gave that vision of these successive coming kingdoms to Nebuchadnezzar first, a Gentile king, and his vision, he saw the glory of man. He saw the kingdoms and the glory of man. That's what we see on television today. doesn't matter whether you're Democrat or Republican. It's the glory of man. You know, kingdoms are the glory of man. This is what we're doing. This is what we can accomplish. This is what we can vote in or vote out or vote up or down or whatever. And, uh, but later, Daniel was given the vision of those same successive kingdoms by, personally, by the Lord, and he saw those kingdoms as beasts, B-E-A-S-T-S, beasts. I don't know if you understand my list, but it's beasts. He saw them as, as, as wicked and powerful and would devour you, and, and, and that's what power does. Power devours you. And we, we have, the, I think, the greatest nation on earth, but it wants to devour us. It wants to devour us as the citizens. It, uh, power loves to be in control, and um, which starts with me and probably to some degree you, and uh, we, we want to be in control. And so, <clears throat> so he saw them as beasts, but it was the same time frame, same kingdom, same time frame. And so when we, when we read in chapter 9, he's going to give a spiritual history. Gabriel is given Daniel. Daniel's been praying, asking for understanding, and Gabriel comes to him and... Um, Verse 24 says this to him. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Daniel's people are the Jews. Just so you understand, since we're jumping into the middle. For your holy city is Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, sins, plural, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy. Seal up means to bring it to an end, to finish it, and then to anoint the most holy. That would be Christ. He said, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, the interpretation in the Hebrew is it's seven weeks of years. And 62 weeks of years, so seven weeks of years would be 49 years, 62 weeks of years would be, I don't know, but added together would be 69 weeks of years, which is 483 years. And he says, until uh, there'll be, there be seven weeks and 62 weeks, the street shall be built again. Uh, okay. 
Let me go back because I stopped to interrupt myself. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. And we know that in secular history, we know the date of that in secular history outside the scripture. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. You can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. But after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Cut off means put to death. So he'll be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come, that's the Roman prince, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. And till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a a covenant with many for one week, and in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing, wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Okay, so the interpretation of that is that Daniel said from the time the decree goes forth, and Darius gives it, I didn't look up in secular history what the year was, But 483 years later, 69 weeks of years, 483 years later, Christ comes into Jerusalem and is put to death. And so right on time. Now, Daniel is talking about a Jewish timetable. Now, we have already been giving the Gentile history of of, of world history uh, about the successive kingdoms. And now he's talking about Jewish history Christ comes, and we have that in the Old Testament and the Gospels. The Old Testament is the prophecies, basically, and the history of of Christ's genealogy and the prophecy of his coming. When you get to the Gospels, you have the record of his coming, of his ministry, his life, his works, and his death, burial, and resurrection. When you get to the book of Acts, then now the, the timeline for this Jewish history stops right here. Messiah is cut off. And now we have a period, an intermediate period of grace. It's the it's church age. And so it is, it is the time that we're living in now. It's been some 2,000 plus years already. Uh, it's from, and that's recorded for us in the book of Acts through Revelation chapter 3. It talks about the church age. If you remember in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there are seven churches that are described, and they were literal churches at the time of the writing, about 90 A.D. They were literal churches in Asia, and John described them. He described their spiritual uh, standing. He, 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 he spoke about the type of churches they were, what kind of uh, problems they were facing, what kind of spiritual problems they were facing, what kind of persecution they were facing. And in, in history and in theology... There are people, I'm one of them, that believe that those churches were literal, real churches. And secondly, they were representative of churches of all time. If you remember, some of the churches were under persecution. Some of them were on fire for the Lord. Some of them, one of them was lukewarm. So they were representative of churches for all time. I've been in a couple of both. <laughs> so uh, at, at been here 50 years, we've gone through those same phases, some of them ourselves. We go through lukewarm periods, and then we go through times of passion that we're really fired up. And, and so we see, we see all of this. And then second, I mean third, 
I believe those seven churches are representative of seven periods of time during this church age. And if that be true, we're living in the last one. We're living in a time where the church, I'm not talking about our church, but I'm talking about churches in general, and I'm not talking about all people who call themselves churches, but I'm talking about Bible churches. We're to a time of complacency. We're to a time of lukewarmness. We're more concerned about our well-being, our happiness, uh, our, our buildings, our whatever, than we are about reaching the world for Christ. And so I think that when you have that in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, just as God gave uh, Daniel an outline of world history and he gave uh, Daniel the outline of Jewish history, he gives to us the outline of church history. Okay, and then we move from that to the rapture. I believe in chapter 4, we'll look at that in a moment, that's when the rapture takes place. And then after that, you have an indeterminate period of time, the Bible doesn't tell us how long it might be, before the covenant is signed with the Jewish people by the Antichrist, and then you have seven years of tribulation time. All right, Revelation is teaching us this from Revelation chapter 4, through, ver- through chapter 19, is teaching us about this seven-year period. This is the last week of Daniel's 70 weeks of time. So we've already seen 69 weeks, Christ is cut off, and then this is the 70th week. Now, this timeline is surely not in proportion. I mean, this is 483 years, and this is seven years from here to here, and a thousand years from here to here. And so Revelation teaches us that when we get to chapter 19, we get to chapter 20, 21, we have the millennial kingdom, and then we have heaven, and which is eternity. Now, what I want to say about this is that I am, in theology, a pre, I'm a pre-tribulation, pre-millennialist, okay? Don't ask me to spell that. But pre, pre-tribulation means... I believe the church is raptured before the tribulation. And some people believe the church is raptured in the middle of the tribulation. Some people believe the church is raptured at the end of the tribulation. Some people don't believe the church is ever going to be raptured at all, that we just wait until Christ comes and we all go to be with him. And then I am a premillennialist. Premillennialist means that a thousand years... In, in, in Revelation 19, is mentioned six times. And the word for a thousand is millennial in Latin. And so millennialist means when does Christ come in relation to the millennial? And there are people who are post-millennialist, which means that they believe Christ won't come here, but he'll come at the end of the millennial. They, they believe that we, the church, will so influence the world that everybody will love their neighbor and we'll have a godly society. Christ in spirit will rule over the, over the earth for a thousand years and then he will bodily come at the end of that thousand years. And a lot of people believe this before World War I. And then fewer people believed it after World War II. And then if you were a Jew during that time, you wouldn't believe it at all. And if you were a... Uh, one of the 50 million people in Russia that Stalin killed, you wouldn't believe it at all either. And so, and for a long time uh, in history, until 1917, there wasn't a Jewish land. From, from Right after Christ came, 
in 70 AD, not long after, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed. In 135 AD, uh, Judaism and, and the Jewish people were destroyed, driven from the land, and there hasn't been an Israel until 1970. And then they uh, chartered themselves as a nation in 1948. And so a lot of times up, up until then, people didn't even believe there would ever be a millennial which would be a regathering of the nation of Israel with Christ as their king ruling on the, on the earth, uh, on the throne of David. So they said, there's not a nation of Israel. How can it, how can it happen? How can, it be, how can they be brought together and have a thousand-year reign and that, that the Lord would rule from David's throne? Because there's not even Israel. But now there is an Israel. And so the Bible is coming true concerning that. So I'm a premillennialist. I believe that Christ comes bodily and rules and reigns during this thousand years. All millennialists means that they believe he waits until the great white throne judgment, that there is no millennial, there is no Jewish nation, that the church has taken place, the place of Israel, and all the biblical promises in the Old Testament now apply to the church, the saved body of Christ today, instead of to the nation of Israel. And let me tell you why I believe that that's not true. Uh, and that this is the most consistent position is to be a premillennialist. And the reason why is because God made a covenant uh, with David that his offspring, which would be the Messiah, would rule and reign. Again, we don't have time to look up the verses, but his offspring would rule and reign for a thousand years in a literal kingdom, and they would be brought together, and all the covenant promises made to Israel would come true. So there has to be an Israel. And what's going to happen? You think, well, I'm not interested in Israel. I'm interested in us Gentiles. What's going to happen to us? We're going to come back with Christ. We go to heaven here, and we're going to come back with Christ, and we're going to rule and reign with him in that thousand years. I'm taking Hawaii. You can have wherever you want. <laughs> so, and I'm just joking. I'll take whatever the Lord gives me, probably Stanton. <laughs> if you're from Stanton, I apologize. <laughs> I promised my wife I wouldn't talk too fast. <laughs> okay, so that's the timeline. And this, this is why the book of Revelation is important. The, time, the, the book of Revelation finishes what God has given to us in the rest of Scripture. It, it tells us the end of the story. It is given to us for our encouragement. It was given to the, all of the scripture was given to the people at the immediate time it was written. It was the, the letters that were written by what the apostles, or the, the Old Testament prophets when they wrote. It was for the benefit of the people listening to them, listening to their voice and reading what they literally wrote. It was for their benefit at that time. And then it's for the benefit through the Holy Spirit and our understanding of every age. The Bible is for all of us, for all people, for all ages. It, it is for all of time that we can be encouraged. Now, what, what does that matter? Because these people, d d during this time, when, when John began to write, they were facing terrible persecution, and they were going to face worse persecution simply for being a Christian. And so God gives the Scripture and Revelation saying, 
I'm going to keep my promises. I'm on the throne. I haven't forgotten my covenants. I'm working this out. I am the fulfiller of history, and it's under my control. And so it's very, it's very encouraging for us. When we read that, then we begin to understand. Now, that's the purpose of the book of Revelation. That is, when I put the number one, number that's the context of Revelation and world prophecy. And now we're going to talk about the tribulation. And when we finish, when our time runs out, uh, I'm going to say we're dismissed. And then if you want to ask questions, you want to stay, you want to ask questions, you can. If I can't answer them, I'll say I'll get you an answer. or I'll, I'll do the best I can. But So you may have questions you think of. Jot them down on your note and, and ask them later. So now we're going to talk about the book of Revelation itself. That's the context. And, and here's, here's what my goal is to help you have a context to study in. You can grasp the message of Revelation. Now, we're never going to understand all about the details of the four horsemen and the 2,000, the 200 million, you know, army that come. We, we, can, we can say, okay, I don't quite understand that. And I don't quite understand how a locust looks like a horse and has fire coming out the front end and the back end. I don't quite understand that. There, there, there are people who've written about it, and there's some good explanations, and you can pick one, and that'd be fine. And, but we don't have to understand all those things. I don't understand, I'm not, as I told you when we started, I'm not the authority. So I don't understand all those things. But we can understand enough that we see the hand of God, and we're encouraged. And we see the hand of God, and we worship. That we say, Lord, our world looks like it doesn't even acknowledge you anymore, but you are in control. You have a plan, and your plan is going to come to fruitation, and I'm trusting you for that. I want to say to you that in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives an outline of tribulation, of the tribulation time. And uh, if you want to make a note on those notes, I, di- I didn't put it in those notes for time's sake. I didn't know whether I'd mention it to you or not. But I think it's important that we know that Jesus said there's going to be a time of tribulation. He also said there's going to be a time of millennial kingdom as well. So I think that is another reason to believe that we ought to be pre-millennialist, uh, that he's going to come before the millennial. But in Matthew 24, in verse 4 through 26, Jesus talks about the time of tribulation. He talks about the second coming in verses 27 through 30. And he talks about the regathering of Israel in verse 31. Let me give that to you again if you're making a note. He talks about the tribulation in Matthew 24, verse 4 through 26. He talks about the second coming, his second coming, in verse 27 through 30. And he talks about the regathering of Israel in verse 31. So Jesus gives an outline long before John writes, uh, and John gives us some details. So we don't, have, we don't have time to read much of the book of Revelation, so we're not going to read much. We're just going to look at these notes. I, when, I, when I put these notes together, I wanted to just give you kind of a working outline. Some of it I took off other people's notes. Uh, some of it I added notes of myself. Revelation is the unveiling, and here's the things I put. It's the unveiling of the intervening church age, chapter 2 and 3. 
It is the resumption of the Jewish timetable. Already mentioned that. It gives us the events of the last week of years, the seven years of tribulation. It is the unveiling of God's promise of an earthly kingdom of Christ, the thousand-year reign. It is the unveiling of the final judgment of mankind, which is, uh, there's going to be a couple of them. Uh, Jesus gives one in Matthew 24. It's the judgment of the sheep and goats uh, prior to the millennial kingdom. Uh, when, when the people who enter the millennial kingdom will be uh, people who are already saved and everybody else will be cast into hell at that point in time. But then the people who are born in the millennial kingdom will have to make a decision. They'll be born just like we were. They'll be born without the knowledge of Christ and they will have to trust Christ themselves personally during that millennial kingdom. It'll just be much easier because Satan will be bound, uh, sin will be repressed, Christ will be ruling, and the knowledge of Christ will be in much more abundance than it is today to, to the whole world. There won't be the darkness of, of sin to the degree that there is in our world today. And so it is the, and then the final judgment would be the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. Every single person who's ever lived, hell will give up those, the grave will give up those, and every person who's alive at that time. And let me just give you my opinion, once since I'm giving you a lot of my opinions tonight. There's 7 billion people approximately on the earth today. I think at the end of the millennial kingdom, they may be 100 billion or more. You say, how can the earth survive that? The sin curse is mitigated. If you drive from here to El Paso, you could probably put a billion between here and El Paso because the earth is going to bring forth fruit because the sin curse is mitigated during that thousand years. And, and, and the, deserts, the deserts are going to blossom. And so it's going to be, you know, climate change is not going to be an issue. Production of food is not going to be an issue. Droughts are not going to be an issue because Christ is here and he's ruling and Satan is bound. And so I think by that time, but at the great white throne judgment, everybody faces judgment. If your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, spend eternity in heaven. If it's not, if you've never repented, never trusted Christ, you're judged for your sin and spend your eternity in hell. So that is the unveiling that we find in the book of Revelation. Introduction, verse 1 through 8. Then you have Jesus among the seven churches, verse 9 through 20, chapter 1. The letters to the seven churches, you already mentioned that, chapter 2 and chapter 3. And then uh, chapter 4, you enter, John enters the throne room of heaven. I think that's in, in, indicative of the rapture. And we Christians are going to go to heaven and say, well, why do you, why do you believe that? And there, again, there are people who believe that, people who don't believe that. You believe that because at the beginning of chapter, from the beginning of chapter 4, after chapter 3, and, and the beginning of chapter 4, the church, and the church is the true church of Christ. It is those who really know Christ. The church is never mentioned again until you get to the end of the book of Revelation. It's mentioned one time in chapter 19, speaking about <clears throat> the marriage supper of the Lamb. It means that during that seven-year period, we who are Christ's bride are going to be united with him in a great celebration. I think it's going to be basically a seven-year-long celebration. We're going to enjoy it, and it's going to be good. And then we're going to come back with him to rule and reign uh, on the earth. So the church, the church is not mentioned 
from, from the end of chapter 3 until you get into chapter 20 or 21. I'm not sure which. I didn't jot it down. But <clears throat> so I think the indication is there. Let me just ask you, you know, to, to use your reason and your logic. If, if God has given us an outline of all of history, <clears throat> secular history, Gentile history, Jewish history, church history, wouldn't he give us an outline of our history that we, we belong to him? And, and then, too, let me ask you to think logically. This, this is going to be the tribulation time, the seven years is going to be the time, it's called in Jeremiah, the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, who's Jacob? Jacob is Israel. Uh, it's, it's a time of Jacob's trouble. You know what? The tribulation is designed to reveal the need of Christ to the world and to reveal the need of Christ to the Jewish nation. And so the Jewish nation is going during that time, have their eyes opened, that they whom they, they're going to look on him whom they crucified and they're going to recognize him as their Messiah. They're, those who survive are going to be believers in Christ. And they have to believe individually just like you did and like I did, but they will, if they survive, they will believe. If they're not martyred before that and they're not, uh, don't lose their life in all the wrath of God being poured out. So we, we get to uh, chapter 4, and um, in chapter 4, you see the throne room in heaven. In chapter 5, um, you see the two natures of Christ. John sees him as a lamb that has been slain. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if John sees him metaphorically. I don't know if John sees him... Uh, I don't, I don't know how you see him as a lamb that has been slain. But, but what John is saying to us by the Holy Spirit, he's saying that he sees him, I believe, in his human nature, that he came incarnate in the flesh to die on our behalf, that he came to be slain on our behalf. And so he, he sees him in his human nature, and Christ still has a human nature, even though he is in heaven, uh, there with God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, but he has a human nature, and he will always have a human nature. We will see him in a human body. We will see him in his human body. We will see the nail prints in his wrists, or palms you could say, but his wrists. We will, we will understand there's a spear's hole in his side. We, we will know him humanly. And yet, John sees him as the, lamb, as the lamb, and he sees him as the lion of the tribe of Judah. So he sees him in his humanness. He sees him in his deity. He, he sees him in his glory. And he sees him in his power and his authority. So he, he sees him in the throne room of God. Uh, he sees that there is a scroll in the hand of God in chapter 5, and no one is worthy to open it. And uh, so, but he, the lamb is worthy to open. He deserved, he, he, he earned the right to open. And what is that scroll? That scroll is the unfolding events that's going to happen in the book of Revelation from, from chapter 6 until chapter 19. It is the unfolding of the judgment of God upon an unbelieving world. It is the unfolding of the, basically the wrath of God against unrighteousness and unholiness. And so that's what we begin to read in chapter 6. 
And in this time, and sometimes if you're not really familiar with the book of Revelation, but beginning at chapter 6, there are going to be seven trumpets. And I want to see if I can do this. There's going to be one, two, three, four, five, no, no, seven seals. Five, six, seven seals. Okay, and so each one of these seals, I think, until you get to number six, I think, and again, I'm not dogmatic about it, but I think that takes us about to the middle of Revelation. And what you see in those first six trumpet judgments is that you see man's inhumanity against mankind. I think you can read that, what Jesus had to say in, in Matthew chapter 24, about four, verse 4 to about 16, you see man's inhumanity. Man, when, when the Holy Spirit is taken out, it, the Holy Spirit is within you and I and every other believer in the world today. And when the Holy Spirit's taken out through the rapture, now the Holy Spirit's still at work in the world, but He's not present like, like He is today, and He doesn't subdue sin like He does today. You know, you know why I don't knock over 7-Elevens? To, to get a Coke instead of paying for it is because I have the Holy Spirit within me. You know, you understand that? I mean, our, our sin is repressed because the Holy Spirit is here. And the Holy Spirit has taught us that we're to, we're to honor Christ and we're to honor one another. And so we subdue that sin nature within us and we put it to death and we work hard at doing that and, and we want to kill it. And when it rises up, your wife will kill it for you. And so it's just... It's just, and so I, I think that these first six are, are the basically, they're the wrath of man unleashed upon the world. And it's really, it's bad. In fact, uh, as, you, as you read through here, one-fourth of the world's population is going to die during that time. Because wars create famine. And they're telling us right now that if Russia goes into Ukraine that probably 50,000 Ukrainians will die, civilians will die. And then there'll be more probably that will die of starvation and they'll freeze to death because if they don't have basic need, their needs met, I mean, it's a brutal country. And uh, so it's going, to be, it's going to be brutal if that happens on the civilian population. And so in these wars... There'll be famine, there'll be drought, there'll be all of these things. They'll talk about a disruption of the supply chain when there's worldwide wars going on and man's doing what they want to against humanity. And then in the seventh trumpet, what it consists of is underneath it, there are seven... Okay, let me, let me go back. This is the seventh seal. I'm going to write that on there so I, so I don't forget. These are seven seals, but the seventh seal consists of seven trumpets. Okay, so they're all a part of this. They're all a part of the seventh seal. And the seven trumpets are trumpet judgments as well. There are judgments upon the earth. I believe that when we get, where are we in, in Scripture, the first six seals go through about chapter 8. If you're looking at your notes, the, the seven seals, the first six, uh, and, and maybe, I put in there maybe, the first half of the seven years, the seventh con contain the seven trumpets, that verse, uh, chapter 6, down through the first of verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. And then beginning in, in chapter 8, verse 2, uh, you have the content of the seventh seal, which is seven trumpets. This could get a little confusing if you don't, if you say it too fast. So, so now, 
you have, I believe we're in at the first part at least of the last three and a half years. You remember what happens in the middle of tribulation? You remember we read in Daniel, the Antichrist goes in the temple and declares himself God. And he sets up an altar to himself in the temple. And it is the abomination of desolation. It happened in Jewish history when a Greek leader did that and offered a sow, a pig, upon the altar. But that, is a, that was a near interpretation. And now we're looking at the far interpretation. And the far interpretation is when the Antichrist does it. When the Antichrist sets up an altar to himself in the temple and declares himself God. That happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. Jesus said in Matthew 24 to the Jewish people, Jesus was speaking to the Jewish people, and he said, when you see that, flee. Flee Jerusalem. Don't go home and get your suitcase. Flee. I mean, get out of there because you're going to be persecuted unmercifully. And he said to them, if you're pregnant, woe is you. If you're, you know, whatever. I mean, he said flee because it's going to be a terrible Terrible time. And he's going to allow them to go through it. Why? Because they rejected him when he came and they brought it upon themselves. I'm not being judgmental. I, I rejected him when I first heard and suffered some judgment from that as well. So you have these, you have these seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet, the content of the seventh trumpet is seven vows. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And I believe these happen in the very last half of the last half. So the last uh, 18 months or so, um, it really, really, or 20 months, whatever it might be, it really intensifies. And here's what I, here's what I already told you I believe, is that the first half, I think, is man's wrath against man. The second half, God pours out his wrath upon mankind. So we got down to uh, chapter 8, the seven trumpets. Um, the first six are the outpouring of the wrath of God. The seventh, uh, well, then, then in, the, in, the context, in the text, you come to an interlude. Then you, you get to the end of chapter 9, and uh, you have an interlude. An interlude means... Now this is just information. Chronology is stopped. The time frame is stopped. And now you just have information. And the interlude would be, uh, you have an angel with a little scroll. You remember he tells John to eat it. Your belly will be, it'll be sweet and then it'll make your belly sour. And so it's more information that John doesn't share with us. And then you have the two witnesses in, verse, in chapter 11, verse 1 through 14, we don't know exactly who those people are. People guess. Uh, Elijah didn't die. Enoch didn't die. Maybe they're coming back. Some people think it's Elijah and Moses because the miracles they're going to do are sound, sounds like Elijah and Moses. Uh, it really doesn't matter. Uh, the Lord said he's going to have two witnesses. They're going to witness to the whole world. And then they're going to be slain and lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three days, and then they're going to rise up. Does that sound familiar to you? Sound like a sound like a death, three-day burial, and a resurrection. And they're going to rise up, and the world's going to see it. Uh, they're going to see it. We used to think they would see it on satellite television. Now they're going to see it 
on their wristwatch. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Dick Tracy could be proud. If you're old enough, if you're old enough in here to know who Dick Tracy is. <laughs> and then you have the seventh trumpet. And the, and the seventh trumpet down in, in, in chapter 11, um, you have judgment and rewards. Um, God is uh, going to bring judgment and rewards. In verse 19 of uh, chapter 11, the ark is seen in heaven. Heaven's open and you see the ark. Now, you remember the ark? The ark was the repository of the covenant that God made with Israel. So who are we dealing with here? We deal, the Gentile nations are going through the ringer. But the time frame is dealing with Israel. It's a time of Jacob's trouble. See, that's another reason the church is not going We're the bride of Christ. How many people would flog their bride and, and, and kill their bride, kill a half of their bride? How many people would do that before they had the wedding ceremony? Well, nobody in their right mind would do that. You know, you may have a brother-in-law that may do that, but nobody in their right mind would do that. And so what you find is that you, you find that it makes no sense for God's people to go through the, the tribulation. Christ is our, is our rest. That's what it teaches the book of Hebrews. Christ is our rest. We rest in Him. It didn't say that we can sustain ourselves in the tribulation. No, we rest in Him. He is our rest. He is our salvation. It's not consistent. Here's the thing you need to learn in your theology. It has to be consistent or something's wrong. And I'm not saying that mine is without error. I'm not saying that. And I, I, you have, you're responsible for yours. And, and, and we learn from others, and I hope you can learn from some of mine, but you're responsible for your interpretation. But it has to be consistent throughout the old Bible. And the, the, the pre-tribulation rapture and the pre-millennial return of Christ is the only doctrinal position that is consistent throughout the whole Bible. It's consistent all the way back through Daniel and the other prophets, and it's consistent through the end of the Bible. And so I hope you can grasp that. Um, when you get to chapter 12, there's various other personalities and personages uh, seen. There's kind of, it's kind of a review of what's happening, but it's with people. We might look at that for, for just a moment. In chapter 12, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the, with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. If you go back to Joseph, and when Joseph had this dream, and what did he dream? He dreamed that um, the moon, the stars, the, and, the, and the, the, the moon, the sun, the stars were going to bow down to him. His mother and his father, the patriarchs of Israel, and, and this, is, this is the symbolism, this is the re- referral to that, this is the nation of Israel. And then being with child, verse 2, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Who brought forth the child? The nation of Israel brought forth the Messiah. So this is speaking of, this is an overview of what happened. God used the nation of Israel, bring forth the Messiah. Verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems on his head. 
as you're reading the rest of the book of Revelation, you know, you're getting a description of the Antichrist. The horns represent power. The crowns represent kingdoms. And the Antichrist is going to take over uh, the revived Roman Empire. It's going to be made up of ten horns or ten kingdoms. Uh, the, the crowns he takes. I mean, he, so this again, this symbolism that we're already seeing. But it's a fiery red dragon. It's Satan behind this. And verse 4, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, threw them to the earth. That would be the uh, angels that are now turned demonic, who, who have rebelled against their estate uh, as an angel of God. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now my Bible, a new King James, has child capitalized, which tells us it was Christ. Verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Okay, has that happened yet? No. When's it going to happen? When's it going to rule all nations with a rod of iron? I'm just making my point now about premillennialism. It's not going to be in heaven because the nations are not going to be there. It's not going to be nations in heaven. God made from one blood every nation under earth, and, and, and that is going to be, nations are going to be erased when we get to heaven. We've been made from one blood. Every nation on the earth has been made from one blood, and there's not going to be nationalities when we get to heaven. And so I want you to understand that this is speaking about Christ ruling and the millennial kingdom. Uh, verse 6, The woman fled into the wilderness where she's a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. 1,260 days is three and a half years on the Jewish calendar. Okay, God made a place. When the, when the abomination happens in the temple... God said, Christ said in Matthew 24, flee, flee. What are they going to flee? Well, we know they're going to flee to Petra. Uh, Petra is a, remember the, you've probably seen an atlas or you've probably seen it on the internet, but it's that, it's that rock city inside that canyon. I'd like to go there. I've never been there. I'd like to go there. I'd like to see it. We'll see it one day. We'll get a first-class ticket when we go to see it then. And they're going to flee there, and God's going to protect them, those who flee of Israel, the last three and a half years. And he, He's going to supernaturally protect them. They're going to trust in Him. They're going to believe in, in Him. And then in chapter 13, you have the two beasts. Now, again, think about Daniel. When Daniel saw these kingdoms, he saw them as beasts. And so the Antichrist is a beast. He's going to act like a beast. He, he's going to be beastly. You say, well, that, today that is the chairman of, of the Communist Party in China. It is Putin in Russia. Uh, it is uh, whatever the uh, rocket man in North Korea. Uh, I can't think of his name. <laughs> and I don't mean to be disrespectful, uh, but it is... Uh, Maybe you've worked for one before. Uh, and, and so they're, 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 he describes him as a beast. And what they're going to be doing is, is that there, there's an unholy trinity that you read about in Revelation. The real trinity is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the unholy trinity is Satan, the first beast, and the second beast. And, and, and the, the second beast is the false prophet. That's the Holy Spirit. So that's the, that's the false Holy Spirit going to convince the world that at the end of this 
millennial, at the end of this tribulation, is going to convince the nations to come to Armageddon. Armageddon is a general term describing a battlefield of Israel. He's going, to, he's going to convince the nations to gather there against the Lord. See, that is, it is everything that is, that is anti-Christ. It's not just one person, but it's everything that is anti-Christ. And then, when you get to chapter 14, you find the Lamb and the 144,000. Uh, at the end of the last, from, from verse 6, to verse 16 in chapter 14, you have the harvest of the saved, that God draws out the saved. You have the gospel by an angel. An angel flies through the heavens and proclaims the gospel to the whole world. So everybody has an understanding. Everybody hears the gospel. They probably, nearly everybody's already heard it from the two witnesses who witnessed from Jerusalem, and the world sees them. But now, they, maybe they've heard it from the 144,000 Jews that were sealed by God, Satan can't touch, and they're witnessing to the world. And now, anybody who doesn't have television or doesn't have an uh, iPhone or whatever, they're going to go and they're going to hear this angel that goes throughout the atmosphere proclaiming the gospel. Every person is going to hear it at that point in time. And then you have, uh, and then you have Babylon, or, or chapter fifteen and sixteen are the seven bowls, the seven vials poured out. Remember back when uh, uh, Pharaoh wouldn't let the children of Israel go, and and God warned him ahead of time, "I'm going to show my glory in you. Uh, I'm going to." Uh, and, and every time Moses went and said, "This is going to happen to you. This is going to happen to you." Uh, and, and, and Pharaoh said, let it happen, I don't care. I, and, and so they, these terrible personal things happen to them. And when you get to these bowls poured out, the first four are on people themselves, very, uh, very powerful, very uh, destructive personal thing, bulls, and it, it's, it's very destructive personal. The nation's already going crazy. You know, they're talking about inflation and all. I mean, it's already, the world's devastated already. But now they're personal, and then it becomes national, and it becomes very destructive. Great hail from heaven, 100-pound hailstones from heaven, and literally the world is just getting destroyed. And and, and you read about it, they won't repent. They said, let the hills and mountains fall on us, hide us from the face of God. They know God's doing it. But they won't repent. They won't repent. And so, um, God judges them. And then you get to chapter 17. And in chapter 17 and chapter 18, you have Babylon. You have Babylon described spiritually. You have Babylon described economically. So what is Babylon? Babylon is when you come back in, you, you come back in biblical history and you come all the way back past this. I didn't put it on the timeline. But do you remember when uh, the people gathered after the flood and they were repopulating the earth and they wanted to build a tower to heaven and they called it, the Lord, the Lord came down and, and, and he, 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 created, he caused their languages to become Babel where they didn't understand each other. And, and that's, in, in the end, there was a city named, built there named, by Nimrod named Babylon and run out of time. But, and so Babylon has always represented 
society that is anti-Christian, anti-Christ, a society that is without Christ. Much of the world's destructive religious heresies begin in Babylon. They have their roots going back to Babylon. Uh, much, much of the occult, uh, a, a lot of things, they have their roots going back to Babylon. A lot of I don't I don't want to get overboard here because I don't have enough time. But a lot of Catholicism has the roots in Babylon. It's just it's just uh, it's just really the thread is throughout the Scripture, throughout history, and what it is. It's a godless system, and it's a godless spiritual system. I should say religious, not spiritual. But there are a lot of people who are spiritual without knowing Christ. They feel spiritual. I feel I don't know. When you visit back in the day, when you could visit people, and you visit people, and they'll just say, "Well, I, I don't go to church, or you know, I don't really believe in Jesus, but I I feel spiritual." And I think, well, that you know, good for you, but it's not going to last, and it's not going to help you when you stand in judgment. God's not concerned about your feelings. He gave His Son to die for your sin. Now, I'm a preacher, so I just have to throw that in there. But you understand. But, but see, Babylon is like that. Babylon is the world system without Christ. We're living in Babylon today. We're living in a world system that is post-Christianity, and we're living without Christ. Now, we're, we're this little isolated group. Evangelical Christians are isolated groups around the United States, and there's more, out in the, there's more around the world now than there is in the United States anymore. And in South America and Asia... There, there are more Christians there than there are now in the United States, people who actually believe in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their sin and believe that this is the Word of God. So it's, we're a post-Christian nation. We're living in Babylon. I'm influenced by Babylon. You're influenced by Babylon and the Babylonian system. And so God's going to destroy it. That's described in chapter 17. Uh, the Babylonian religious system is going to be destroyed. The Babylonian Capitalistic systems going to be destroyed. Now I'm a capitalist. I mean, so don't I don't mean that's wrong. I don't mean, but I mean it's a godless system that's that's just there and cares nothing about God and actually is against God. And it's the systems of the world. It's the systems of most governments, and it's going to be destroyed. He describes that in 17 and 18. In verse 19, the first 15 verses of chapter 19, first 15 verses are praise. For Babylon's destruction. The last, the, the next five verses are praise for the wedding of the Lamb. In, in, 19, in chapter 19, verse 6 through 10, it's the church wed to Christ. We're wed to Christ. Now, when I first learned that, when I first got saved, I was an adult when I got saved. And I thought, I'm not going to marry a man. <laughs> You're like, why'd your man, why'd your, why don't your mind work like that? Because I'd just gotten saved. That's why my mind worked. And I was thinking, I'm a little offended about that. I'm married to a woman. I don't want to be married to a man. But, but you know, the difference is now that I understand it, I'm excited about it. You know what it means? It means he's my protector. He's my, he's my savior. He's my protector. He's my provider. He, he is my shield. He's my buckler. He is everything spiritually to us eternally what a husband is to be to his wife, earthly. Now, many, most of us fail that. Most of us don't do that right. We're sinners, and we have this sin nature, and we don't fulfill our calling. But, but, but when you understand that, I, I'm, I'm excited about it. We're going to be married to Christ. We're going to, 
We're going to be in the presence of Christ and enjoy the riches of Christ. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We're not Christ. We're, we're not deity. But we're going to dwell in deity's presence forever. I, I tell our class from time to time, you know what that means to me? It means that my sin nature will never affect me again. I will never be envious. I'll never be lustful. I'll never be prideful. I'll never be boastful. I'll never be fearful. I'll I'll never struggle with the issues of the flesh again. That is what it means to be married to to Christ. It is total liberty. It, It is liberation. And it's what's going to happen to us during that time. And then we're going to come with him and uh, in chapter 20, in verse 6, we read six times there, I think, the thousand-year period is mentioned. Satan is bound for a thousand years. Satan is bound during this thousand years. The, the earth is going to bring forth plentiful. If a person dies at 100 years old, they're dying as an infant, is what it says. Now, I want you to think about, when I told you there might be 100 billion people on the earth, I want you to think about, for a thousand years, people are going to marry and bear children, and they're not going to die. And throughout our history of the world, more children have died in birth and infancy, not even talking about abortion now, but in birth and infancy than is populated the earth today. And so, but that's all going to end, and it's going to be generated for a thousand years, over and over and over. It's going to be generated, and there's going to be billions and billions and billions of people upon the earth, and I believe the majority of them will trust in Christ. But there will be a remnant who do not, because every person has to choose. There will be a remnant who deny him and will not believe in him, and they will face judgment at the end of that thousand-year period. They, in their body, will face Christ and be judged. And then when the great right right throne judgment comes, everybody's judged. And uh, heaven and hell, and and then um, the end comes. Chapter 21, you read about the new heaven, the new earth, new Jerusalem, uh, in the beginning of chapter 22. And chapter 22, 6 through 21, you get the conclusion and the benediction. I want to just, I want to give you, okay, the last, my number three Roman numeral is the value of Revelation. I've already talked to you about it for, for just a moment. And I read the first three verses. And now I want to read to you in chapter 22, in verse 6 and 7. Chapter 22, verse 6 and 7. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must, take, that must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, for us to keep them means that we believe them. It means that we accept them. We embrace them. We believe them. We don't have to do anything outside of that. We don't have to fight the dragon ourselves, but we believe them, we keep them, we accept them. And then uh, I want to read one more passage in verse 16 and 17. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely for I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to these things God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book if anyone takes away from the words of the book the prophecy God shall take away his part from the book of life from the holy city and from the things which are written therein now 
It doesn't mean if we misunderstand it. It doesn't mean if we misinterpret it. It simply means if we deny it. If we deny that God is at work in our world and God has a plan and He's going to bring it to a consummation one day. So if we deny that, that's what it means to take away from the words of this book. It doesn't mean if I don't understand exactly what, what, what it means about this passage, if I don't understand, that's not what it's talking about. Uh, we, we'll never understand the book of Revelation until we stand in the presence of Christ. And then it'll be a lifelong, not a lifelong because we won't have life, but then it'll be an eternal journey after that. We'll continue to learn. You know why? Because God is infinite. Christ is infinite. We will continue to learn of Him as we, as we spend time with Him. It will never, ever end. Let me give you a couple of just... Uh, uh, there's Gruden's systematic theology. You can read about the different viewpoints uh, in Gruden's. I, I trust it. I think it'd be good. There's a book by a, a man named Dwight Pentecost called Things to Come. Things to Come. The, the, in theology, the word eschatology means things to come. Well, Dwight Pentecost, who was with Dallas Theological Seminary, wrote this book, Things to Come. And I, I think it explains better than any other book I've ever read about how you arrive at a balanced thinking throughout the whole Bible. It really has been a help to me. I I hope it would be to you. And then I referred to, when I taught it in our class, I referred a lot to a book by John uh, Walvoord, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D, John Walvoord, and the title of his book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ, which is a commentary on the book of Revelation. I'm going, to, I'm going to pray and we're going to be dismissed. And if you need to go, feel, or if you want to go, if you need to go, feel free to go. If you have questions, I'll stay and uh, we'll, we'll talk about them. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you promised us a blessing. Lord, you promised us a measure of understanding. And Lord, what we want to do is worship you. We want to trust you. We, we want, as we go about our daily life and face the issues that we have in our lives today, Lord, whether it be relational in our marriage or in our business or or political in our world, whatever it might be, Lord, we want to have hope. We we want to know that you're sovereign, that you're in control, that you you have a plan, you revealed this plan 2,700 years ago to Daniel, and that we can trust you today. Please help us, and you be honored in our faith. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, if you, if, if you need to leave, you want to leave, feel free to go. Uh, we're done. If you have a question, I'm hard of hearing, so say it plainly. Anybody have a question? What was the second book that you mentioned? The second book, Things to Come by Dwight Pentecost. That, that, yes, ma'am. Um. Okay, I could give you my opinion uh, and maybe a little bit of scripture if I can think of the scripture. But you know, when you remember, I was going to put something on the chart, but you, do you remember when, uh, when Lazarus died and he went into Abraham's bosom? Do you remember that? And, and, and so 
the rich man died, and he and Abraham, he and Abraham could see each other. But there was a great gulf in between them. Okay, and then think about when Jesus was on the cross and, and the thief believed in him and he said, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say heaven, he said in paradise. Okay, so what happens, what I, what I take from that and what I've read other, other people say, and I, I want you to stay with me, I mean, so, so it's based, it, it's, it's not confirmed, but it's based upon those scriptures and others. What, what I take from that is that we know that we, we know that until Christ was resurrected, nobody was resurrected. He was the first resurrected to eternal life eternally. So what happened to these people? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna just draw a circle. Okay? So they went into Abraham's bosom, and then there is this place of punishment. I'm gonna put a P there for punishment. And it's it's, it's not really hell, but but it's called Okay, in the Bible, you're reading the words Gehana, you're reading the word hell. And, and so this is a place of punishment, but not eternal punishment. You remember when, when the great white throne, death and hell gives up everybody that's in them, and they're cast into the lake of fire. That's eternal. This, this is already, they're, they're eternally there, but they haven't received their final judgment yet. They have not stood in the great white throne judgment and been, and been judged out of the book of their deeds. So what, what I believe, and I'm just telling you this, what I believe, I, I believe from those things that we read, that there is an intermediate place that when, when before Christ was resurrected, there's an intermediate place that people who had faith, when they died in faith, they, they go to Abraham's bosom. Now what does that mean? It just means it's a good place, I know that, because Lazarus was comforted there and uh, but he, there's a great gulf fixed between there and the punishment. But when Christ was resurrected and when he ascended, you remember when the earthquake came, graves were opened. You read that in the Gospels. When the earthquake came, when Christ died, graves were opened. And then those people, when Christ rose from the grave, those believers in the Jerusalem area, that their graves were open, they rose. And, and I, you know, did they just... We don't have any information about it. That's all we know. The Bible just says they rose. Now, we do know when, when Christ raised someone from the dead, they went on to die again. Uh, his friend Lazarus died again. Uh, you know, the, the little girl, she, she died again. Um, but, but when these people, when Christ rose, those people didn't die again. There's no information they died again. They, they went with him. There is a passage. I'm trying to think where it is. And it says that when Jesus ascended, he carried captivity captive. Okay, there's different interpretations of what that means. I'm going to tell you what I like. What, what I like is that when Jesus arose and ascended into heaven, he carried captivity captive. He took all those Old Testament souls that died in faith with him into heaven. Uh, do, do you remember... Okay, I'm, I'm thinking of a couple of things at once. I'm giving you a really long answer. Are y'all okay? You still with me? Okay. In, um, when you're reading in Corinthians, and oh, no, excuse me, you're reading the book of Acts, and you get in chapter 17, and, and Paul says to the Athenians there that God has overlooked your sins. I mean, God's overlooked your sins. But now he's commanded all men everywhere to repent. I think that's like verse 27 of chapter 18 or 19. 
He said, but now he's commanded all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day of judgment by him whom he raised from the dead. Okay, and then you read in Romans chapter 3, and I believe it's verse 5. We could look at it, admit, but I'm just going to get it close if that's not it. But in verse 3, and it says that God overlooked man's ignorance because their sins had, he overlooked their sins, and it, but, but not anymore. So what happened is that when you go in this intermediate state, your sins have not yet been paid for by the cross of Christ. So these people who died in the Old Testament, they went in this intermediate state, but their sins had not yet been paid for. They were saved by the cross, just like we are, but, but not yet. It hadn't happened physically yet. And so Christ had not literally paid for their sins. But they were safe in the Lord until when Christ ascended, he took everyone from the Old Testament who was saved with him. That's how I see it. Today, uh, the Bible says it differently. Uh, to be absent from the body for Christians, be present with the Lord. But, but there also, if you, were, if you went through our theology classes, we also learned that if I, if I die today, which is possible if I keep eating ice cream, I, I die today uh, in, this, in this age, my body goes in the grave and deteriorates, but my soul goes to be with the Lord. I'm, I'm with the Lord, but when Christ comes in the rapture, I'm reunited. Now, somehow, I'm with the Lord, and when, when I am, am, my body is raptured, I'm reunited with a new body. My body's been, I have a body like Christ's body at that point. Not when I die, but when I'm raptured, I do. But yet I'm still known for who I am. I still know Christ in my spiritual soul, I guess you could say. I'm still with Christ in the intermediate time. That help? That too muddled? Um, no. <laughs> so, what I was wondering is once the thousand year reign begins, those that have been raptured or have passed away, like, are they on the earth as well? Like, or are they still. Yes. Okay. Yeah, Revelation 19, we, we come with him. Okay. We, we come clad in our linen robes. We come in the robes of righteousness. We're, we're going to rule and reign with Christ on the earth. Every, everyone, who, everyone who is saved, okay, there are, several, there are several resurrections. I don't have my notes, and I don't know if I can get it right off the top of my head. And I don't know if, if when I think it's right, it's right anyway. But there are several resurrections. There is this resurrection when, when Christ arose. There's this resurrection. There's this resurrection when the saints come out of the graves. And, and the bodies of the saints come out of the graves and go to be with him. And we who are alive and remain be caught up together with them in the air, First Thessalonians 4. And then there is a resurrection when, when, when Christ comes at the end of the tribulation. There's a resurrection for those who are saved, um, but the resurrection is not a bodily resurrection yet. They just enter in their physical body into the millennial kingdom. At the end of the millennial kingdom they receive a new body. But their body will last. See, there's going to be, I don't know how many people will actually go into the millennial All the unsaved people will die. All the unsaved people will be judged and will be put in this intermediate prison. 
But because in, to, to await the resurrection of the great white throne and to be judged for their sin at that point in time. So there's various resurrections uh, of time. But the people who are saved and live through the tribulation, the Jewish people and Gentiles alike, if they haven't been martyred and they live through the tribulation, uh, they will enter into the millennial kingdom in a human body and reproduce. We won't reproduce during that time. We'll be like the angels who neither marry or are given in marriage. And we will be beyond that. And so, <clears throat> but. What? We'll be ruling and reigning with Christ. Yeah. And what does that mean? I, you know, I take it from the scripture, you know, Christ, Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron. So he's going to rule the nations, which means that they're going to, they're going to understand morality. They're going to understand his authority. They're going to understand his majesty. The, the nations, doesn't matter where they are, they will know of him and know him, and we will be his emissaries. Okay, so you go back through the pattern of the Old Testament, the Jewish nation. And again, we're not Jews, but you go in the pattern. And, and Moses had 70 people under him who, who settled disputes. And that's the kind of thing that we will do. You know, we won't rule with a rod of iron, but we will rule with the rod of iron backing us up. We, we, will, we will proclaim his majesty. We, we will proclaim his uh, salvation to the people in, in our area. You think, how is that possible? How can, how can we rule and reign throughout the whole earth? Do you know today that in, in China that they have a government watcher for every 250 people? And, and so we, we're not going to have to do that. We're not watching for what... We're, we're not going to be ruling and reign, in my opinion, watching for what people do wrong. We're going to be training people to know Christ. We're going to be training people to do right, and to be blessed, and to follow him, and, and, and enjoy his grace and his majesty. And I think that's what we'll be, that's what the ruling reign is going to amount to. Anybody else have a question? I've heard the millennial reign compared to the Garden of Eden. Uh, is that the Garden of Eden, yeah. it will be like the Garden of Eden. I agree. I think it will. The curse will be mitigated, not lifted yet, but mitigated. And uh, <clears throat> so what it means is that Satan's bound, all his, adversary, all his emissaries are bound. And see, today we don't really recognize the influence of Satan, but it's, it's, it's darkness. It's, it's darkness of the mind. It's, it's a confusion of the mind. And then there's a curse upon the physical earth. Man, by the sweat of his brow, is going to bring forth fruit. A woman's going to bring forth Go near to death to bring forth a child. I mean, it's, so it's just hard. Life's going to be, life is hard. And you may want to say, well, why did God make it that way? So we wouldn't be pleased in a fallen state. So we wouldn't say, and, and you know, our temptation, I, I say this, I quote John Piper in our class a lot. We live in Disneyland. I mean, we, we go home and we, we, don't, we have a modest house, but we have uh, automatic heating and air and we have hot water and we have uh, two televisions, and we, we have, I mean, we got, stuff, we got stuff in the refrigerator, and we got stuff in the freezer out in the garage, and, and so we live in Disneyland. We have a car that runs, and we can buy gasoline, and we live in Disneyland. But what happens is that it, if, if we were satisfied with that, we would, never, we would never recognize the penalty of sin. 
And so the curse came upon mankind so that mankind would recognize that there's something more to life and that's not just the Garden of Eden. Now here's a little thought that I use. Here's, here's something that in my imagination, when, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden and, the, and God put a guard there so they couldn't come back in in their fallen state and eat of the tree of life and live eternally in a fallen state. So God wanted them to be redeemed. He wanted them to be saved. He wanted them to have an eternal life. And so he didn't want them to live in an eternal state, fallen. But you know what our nature is, what mankind's nature is since then, is that instead of wanting to restore the relationship with God, we want to restore the environment. Now, think about that for a moment. All the talk today about environment, and I think our world is important. It's going to be burned up one day, so it's not of ultimate importance, but, but it's, it's, a, it's important. We should, we should have a concern to some degree about climate and all, all those things and about trash and all those things. And, and, you know, but at the same time, what's going to happen one day is that our nature is that we want to restore the environment of the Garden of Eden instead of the relationship to God, which translates to me as a Christian is that a lot of my prayers are, God, would you bless me? God solved my problems. God, would you, instead of saying, God, let me learn of you through this. Let me grow. Let me trust you more. Let me not be concerned about these. Don't, don't let these problems in my life overwhelm me that I don't have faith and that I have a bad spirit in my life. Instead of that, we say, God, restore my happiness. Restore my, restore my garden. That makes sense? <laughs> well, he's going to do that for the world. It, it, but not totally. It's not going to be because there's going to be a rebellion at the end of it. Satan's going to be loosed at the end of a thousand years, and he's going to firm it. He's going to draw together those people who have not surrendered their heart to Christ. And out of hundred billion, or I'm just saying, out of hundred billion, there may be, I don't know how many more on the earth. But you ever think about the fact that okay, there's there's seven billion people on the earth. We're right here. There's 7 billion people approximately on the earth. If you went all the way back to Adam and Eve, there, there may be only 15 billion that's ever lived. And the majority of them to this point, counting, so there may be an 8 billion, and now today the demographics tell us that now there's 7 billion. But if you go all the way back, you know, and you, you look at genocides and death rates, mortality rates of infants and all that, there, there hasn't been great population all the way back. I mean, I know in my lifetime it's gone from, what, 5 billion to 7? Something like that, I don't remember exactly. And uh, so we have this idea that there's these billions and billions of people who've lived since the beginning of time. And, but there hasn't been, I mean, 50 million people is a lot. Of, and I'm not, that's just a number I'm throwing out. I've read actually what people who study demographics have said and I don't remember what it was, and it was something like 20 years ago when I read it. But, but, but let's just say if it's 15 billion people today, the majority of them would be lost. When, when, if, if, it, if the judgment happened before the millennium, the majority of them would be lost. Okay. Is God going to create a world and give his son to die for the sin of those who would believe in him? and more people end up lost than would be saved, I can't see it. Now, I don't believe in universal salvation. 
I believe everyone has to trust Christ. And I think today the majority of people are lost, who's ever lived. But by the time we get to the end of the millennial kingdom, I think the balance will be in Christ's favor. I, I think if there's 100 million people on the end of the world, I, I think the majority of them are going to be saved. And it's going to overwhelm the few who are going to be lost. But today, Jesus said, there are few that be that find the narrow gate, many that find the broad way. Yes, ma'am. When the devil, when Satan is loosed again, and it says that he'll be seeking to deceive and even the elect of God. Yeah. I mean, those that have already accepted Christ, I mean. Yeah. Well, he deceives us to some degree all the time, Alma, but, but not, uh, not to lose our salvation. We can lose our peace. We can lo- For those that um, maybe thought that they were saved, but they have not. There will be, yes. Those are the ones that still are victimized. Yes. Yes, those who are religious without actually trusting in Christ. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting that when, when people live their life for hundreds of years, and they, they, they see Christ visibly, and they see his goodness, and they see his blessing, and they see his provision for the world, and, and they see his uh, fairness, and they see his liberty, and I, I can't describe all the things he's going to do for the world during that time, and yet their heart won't be toward him. There'll be some people who, who just, and, and you know, if you've been in church for a while and you've raised kids, you have grandkids, not everybody follows. You know, you, you come out of the best home in the world and not trust Christ. It's just amazing, but it's true. We have a fallen nature, and it's the grace of God that brings us to Christ. Okay, you're free to go anytime. But anybody else have a question? I'll try to answer it. Hey, well, I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you later. You're welcome.